0: Today, we finish... First Thessalonians. We'll be in First Thessalonians chapter 5, so we will finish that off. And then in two weeks, we'll be in Second Thessalonians, and we'll finish that before Christmas. So we've got all sorts of things that are happening. And for those of you that find yourself saying, okay, you do cover some of the material that we deal with in the church, and we're following along pretty much. I think I'm ahead of almost all of the other speakers because they just grow a little bit slower than I do, but I think we will end on time. You know, Being a talk show host, I'm always. I was used ending on time, so it's just not a problem for me, but nevertheless some of them are way back in First Thessalonians one or something, but hopefully they'll catch up. But anyway, what we do is we go through the material that the church encourages us to study. Today the topic is on the subject of work, and so at the end I'm going to talk a little bit about my newest booklet on a biblical view of work, and that I think would be appropriate. Many of you that donate to our ministry, my personal ministry, already have received it in the mail, but the rest of you have brought a few extra copies. And so we 'll try to give you some practical applications of all the things that we're studying. and so today, turn with me, if you would, to first thessalonians five we 're going to look at verses twelve to twenty eight and some of those are very short verses, so even though that looks like it's going to last for a long time we 'll go through that relatively quickly. And Parker did mention point of view, and I just thought as a program note, might mention that tomorrow we do our millennial roundtable that 's not when they let old guys like me, sit around the table, and uh, one of the persons, people sitting around the table, is Jonathan Teague, and you just heard him preach a couple of weeks ago. So, if you wanted to tune in at one o'clock or two o'clock to hear that, um, you certainly can. Uh, later in the week, I have Al Moller with us, and um, I also am going to have Michael Perrin later this month, in to talk about adoption. Remember, he talked about chosen. Wasn't that good today? So, again, uh, we just always have such great programs here. So, again, that's just another aspect of something that you might want to look for on the program. But let's, if we can, focus today on the fact that as we come to the end of this first letter... As the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, we're going to talk about living together in a community with patience, with forgiveness, and selfless love. And so we'll look at the first two verses there in verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. The first thing that we see here is after he has addressed these questions about the second coming, now he's giving us some final admonitions to the church in Thessalonica, but by implication to us as well in the 21st century, how to live in a Christian community. And the first thing he says is, don't sit around and just wait for the return. That's probably why he spends some time talking about work. If you knew that the Lord was going to return tomorrow, what would you do today? I think you'd probably just sit around. But, you know, Martin Luther, I think, had a great line. He said, if I knew the Lord was going to return tomorrow, I'd still plant a tree today and pay my debts. Because the bottom line is, we really don't know when he will return. We're one day closer, but we don't. And so there's a chen- tendency sometimes to just sit around and wait for the Lord's return. Instead of being preoccupied with his return, we should be occupying till he returns. And Pastor Graham talked about that today in terms of evangelism. So the first thing he now talks about in the community is what? Honor your leaders, because after all, they're doing the Lord's work. And he emphasized the fact that these are good leaders. They should be honored and held in high respect. Even in this particular Sunday school class, we have a number of deacons, some that are currently serving, some that have served in the past. And so, again, those are people we should always honor and also certainly honor the pastoral staff that we have. Because as I put up here, when you have a good leader, And lately I found myself doing a number of radio interviews on leadership. If you are really under the leadership of someone who is following the Lord, teaching good doctrine and leading the church in godly ways, then you will see a healthy church. Now, I also, from time to time, do interviews with people that have talked about some of the scandals in the church, and we've seen some leaders, quite frankly, not in this church, but in other leaders, but maybe even in this church way in the past, that did not lead carefully, and so when we certainly do have good leadership, we should be encouraging them and appreciating and honoring them, and also respecting the authority when they, what, admonish you, and when has Pastor Graham admonished us? I think about a half an hour ago uh, to go out there and to be good witnesses. So again, that's some other aspect of that. And as long as that admonition is in accordance with Scripture, which obviously it was, then this is really the idea of being grateful and thankful for that correction and for our training so that we will be more like Jesus. So uh, there are some really great principles we can derive even from these two verses. A couple more before we move on. Because not only did he say that we should honor leaders. What's the second thing? Be at pace among themselves, a unified community. Again, if you have been in other churches, you know that sometimes church splits and church conflict and church government can be really contentious. And so I recognize that we should always be at peace in a unified community. Uh, there should be peace and harmony. I think that comes from humility and selfless love. And really, if nothing else, this body of believers that we see in the local church should, in a sense, carry out Christ's purpose around the world. And I thought a good example of that, which we read about in the book of Acts, is the church in Jerusalem. Notice in Acts 4, verse 32, how the church which was really, if you will, the first church that was established, established really by Peter, even before Paul has become a believer, um, and they were actually described as what? Of one heart and mind. And so the argument was is that because there was something unique about that church in Jerusalem, it attracted uh, individuals, and then the next verses begin to tell us that there were people that were added Every single day to the church. The people saw the community, they saw their unity, they saw their love, their generosity, their peace, their harmony, and it was attractive. So one of the arguments I think we would make is that as I have found myself over the last couple of months doing survey uh, interviews, because at Probe we've done this massive survey of more than thousands and thousands of people, I have oftentimes people say, well, what's the answer? The answer is for the church to be the church. I mean, in a world of conflict and turmoil, to look at a body of believers that have peace and harmony and love one another, that has got to be attractive to people looking around and saying, my goodness, what has happened to our culture? So I think we have a great opportunity, if I can change the metaphor, to light a candle, to light some lamps. In a very dark world. And so that's the first thing that we see. And that's convicting enough, but we have a few more points to make here. Let's go on now to verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Now he spends some time talking about this issue of work. Because he talks about the idea of admonish, encourage, help, and be patient. But he really takes two groups of individuals that weren't working and puts them in two very different categories. The idle and the weak. And what we can see is the weak could not provide for themselves. So this is where the community provides for them. You can see other passages that talk about the widows and the orphans and those who we could even say that are disabled and cannot work. Those who cannot work certainly deserve our gracious opportunity to reach out to them. But then we come to the others that aren't saying they cannot work, they just will not work, and that's what he calls the idol. The others could not provide for themselves. The idol would not provide for themselves. And the claim that Jesus is making through Paul is that you actually indeed need to go and admonish them. Just as in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about dealing with individuals in the church that are not following the biblical uh, doctrine. Now, Paul expands that a little bit to say, if you are teaching false doctrine or you're not working and you're idle, well, then we need to admonish you again. One, because of just the incredible drain it must have been. Can you imagine this small, fledgling church of believers in Thessalonica? If you had a good number of people that were just sitting around waiting for the rapture, you know, that's a real burden. Uh, We had a Texas senator a number of years ago that said, you know, you run into social and economic problems when you have more people in the wagon than you have people pulling the wagon, right? Phil Graham used to say that. And this is the same kind of issue that you have here. But not only was it a drain on the church, it was a bad witness to the world. So he says... For those that have needs that they cannot meet, we meet those needs. For those that will not work, as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians, they will not be allowed to eat from that banquet table that is being provided. Interesting enough, as soon as he says, admonish them, notice he then goes on to say, be patient with all. Well, then be patient with what? Though people that were engaged in idleness and needed to be admonished. So even in the midst of admonitions you give to idle or lazy people, still you should be patient with them, because again, we're reflecting the image of God to one another and the outside world, but this command is to encourage what are called the faint-hearted. The Greek actually is a low-souled person. I found out in a commentary that actually Aristotle talked about a high-souled person, a high-souled person, Aristotle, would talk about somebody who was really cocky and confident. matter of fact, he, uh, today Pastor Graham gave us an illustration. Mike Fetchner, before he really got the vision, you know, maybe couldn't tell him anything. You know some people. You just can't tell them anything. They think they got it all together. And so here, this is talking about people that are just the opposite of that. And here, the faint-hearted people are what, in the Greek, were called the low-souled people. And in some cases, then, they need encouragement. Those could be people that you might know that maybe have certain gifts, but they don't see that they have any real contribution to the body of Christ. And some of the best things that we can do and some of the things I've done on radio in the past are to really help people figure out what their spiritual gift is and to figure out what contribution they can make to the body of Christ. So even in the midst of this, he's saying, sure, we admonish the lazy, But sometimes the idle, the lazy, might just say, I don't really have anything to contribute and to encourage them in a very positive way. Then we move on to the next verse, and this is verse 15, which now reminds us that we say, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, always seeking to do good to one another and everyone. And in this particular case now, we're looking at this issue of revenge. Why did he say that? Well, it's quite possible that after being persecuted in Thessalonica, it was easy for them to say, Oh, you're going to try that? Well, I'll retaliate. And so this tendency for any of us, when somebody assaults us, somebody makes fun of us, when somebody wants to take our rights away from us, our first reaction is, well, we want to fight back. And in the Old Testament, of course, we have a very clear admonition that they were not to take revenge. Deuteronomy thirty two reminds us that revenge belongs to the Lord, and Paul picks that up in Romans twelve nineteen, uh which he quotes that very same verse. And it sounds like Pastor Graham will get there in a couple of weeks, but we're in Romans nine right now, but by the time he gets there we'll talk about that. And this idea of repaying evil with more evil only promotes evil. What does Paul say instead? We repay evil with what? good. And so that is certainly a principle there. And so it's also this idea of forgiveness. Maybe he discerned that there maybe was some unforgiveness there. If you've ever watched uh, The Chosen in the second season, there are all sorts of disciples that are having trouble with Matthew, for example, because he was what? A tax collector. Can we forgive an individual that turned against his own race? Um, and so that's one of the themes that even runs through that television program as well. But unforgiveness, we can certainly say, eats you from the inside out. But forgiveness, unforgiveness eats you from the inside out, but forgiveness sets you free. Doing good to those who have harmed you, praying for those who persecute you, is a spiritual discipline, and that's what Jesus taught, and Paul is reminding them once again. And a good example is, you remember when Peter asked Jesus, How many times should I forgive someone? Up to seven times. That was pretty generous of Peter, if you think about it, because the rabbis at the time, you can read this in the Talmud and in the Mishnah, said, no, you only have to forgive three times. So, as Peter is wont to do, he said, well, three is good, Seven's better, so certainly I'm going to win on this one, right? And then Jesus knows 70 times 7. Of course, the implication is you always are to forgive. And so you can see that principle of forgiveness and grace and love is what he's trying to communicate to this body of believers who were suffering from the persecution. But, again, deal with the slings and arrows, but don't repay evil for evil. Don't engage in revenge. Because if nothing else, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your hearts, that will certainly help you to forgive. And really, if you think about this, if you understand what God has done to forgive you, how could we then not forgive others? You would, by definition, want to be a person of forgiveness and grace because of the forgiveness and grace that God has showered upon you. If you're part of the new creation, new identity in Christ, you would certainly understand that as well. Well, Let's move on to the last couple of verses here, verses 16 and following. Paul says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so he begins to help us understand that, again, here are some admonitions to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. And these are sort of all consuming. Rejoice always? When do you not do that? Well, always is always, right? Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Obviously, there's a little bit of hyperbole. There's some times when we can't pray, can't thank, uh, whatever. But the implication is, is that joy, prayer, and thanksgiving should be a constant attitude that we as believers should have. And just as he's admonishing them and encouraging them to stand strong and to be people of rejoicing and prayer and thanksgiving, so also we should as well. And of course, prayer is our lifeline to the Father. But then, many people actually believe that this section may have been what you might call... Can I use the word catechism? I know today catechism, we think of that as being a Catholic thing or a Lutheran thing. But it seems like because of the way this is put together in the Greek, that this may have been something that was said in every church service, which is kind of interesting because verse 14 gives us instructions on how to live together. Verse 15 talks about forgiveness. And then verses 16 to 22 seem like they might have even part of the liturgy, if I can use that word, of the early church. Which is very interesting. There are many people that are believing that we have elements of the liturgy in First Thessalonians. Also that we have elements of that early church liturgy in First Corinthians 15. Now why do we say that? Well, I'm not going to turn this into a Greek 101 class. But if you look at all of those in the Greek, there is alliteration in that every one of those words starts with the peace sound, which is in the Greek. And it's quite possible then that that made it very easy to memorize and likely gives us the first glimmer of what a liturgy in the first century church might have been like. Anyway, I just thought I'd pass that on. Uh, It's free of charge, and it's just another one of those kinds of things we talk about sometimes in a seminary class. Then, look at this. Those three imperatives, for what purpose? The will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And we talk about God's will, and oftentimes when we ask what's God's will, we're talking about, you know, what career should I pursue? What uh, person should I marry? You know, where should I live? All of that's very important. Okay, I see these married couple in the back are actually touching each right now. Uh, certainly the case, the grants. Okay, but let's see if we can go on to recognize that as well, some of the most important church uh, choices are about what? How you are to live. I'm not minimizing who you marry Where you live, what your career is, but it is interesting that when you look at this idea of the will of God, it's very clear that Paul here, and also we see that Jesus teaching as well in the idea that really the most important issues are how we are related to Christ. The whole issue of our sanctification. Whether we're keeping his commands, whether we're loving one another, whether we're abiding in him. That's why I put John 15 there as a good example. So when we talk about the will of God, sometimes Paul is not talking about those issues that we do pray about and should pray about. He's talking about the broader context of the will of God that we follow Christ in our sanctification. thought that was kind of interesting. So again, what is God's will for us? Rejoicing, praying, giving thanks in every circumstance, loving God, loving others in all things. We've already seen that. No matter what your career is, no matter what your relationship is, no matter what situation you're in, no matter where you're living. And we know God's will by ultimately offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So that we can understand God's will and that we can walk with Christ in wisdom and in serving him. And so that's really the concept there of God's will. A couple more verses real quickly. Verses 19 and following. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so here is the concept, very quickly, of, of testing every message. Now here, the concept, of course, is prophecies, but I think this is very much an, a call for discernment. We're going to need discernment more than ever with this cacophony of voices, many of which are false gospels and false ideas. We're going to have to, as believers in the 21st century, really begin to think biblically about every area of life we're dealing with more pluralism than has existed in the world since really the first century. And so again, it's going to be really important for that. And so the context, and even the grammar here, hold fast to what is good, abstain from other evil, again is the idea of testing, in this case prophecies, but testing anything that you hear, read, or see. And so that takes discernment, it takes wisdom, Even abstain from all kinds of evil goes beyond just the idea of good and evil teaching, but even actions. And then finally, it talks about this idea, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Why do they use that word? Because almost every time you see the Holy Spirit, especially in the book of Acts, it's associated with the word fire. You you think about quenching a fire. Uh, You have, for example, they talk about the fact that the disciples had tongues of fire at Pentecost. You have Paul encouraging Timothy to fan into flame the gift of the Holy Spirit. So do what you can to make sure that you do not quench the Holy Spirit, but you are sensitive to the Holy Spirit leading you in your life. And then it talks about the fact that we are to do what is good. turns out that that word is a Greek word that could be just as easily or accurately translated genuine as opposed to like a genuine coin or a counterfeit coin. And so there, I think, gives us a model for that as well. Because if you have ever been around somebody that has worked in a bank, or if you ever worked with somebody that's ever been in a secret service that works with counterfeit money, what they always do is they teach them what a true dollar bill is, $5 bill, $50 bill, $100 bill is. Because when you study the real thing, then you can pick up a counterfeit At a moment's notice, because you know what the real looks like, because if you taught about the different counterfeits, well, there are just so many different ways in which money has been counterfeited over the years. But if you know what the real thing is, you pick up the counterfeit. I think the illustration here, if you allow me to extend that, is if you know what God's word says, if you know what truth is then you'll pick up error in a moment because you've been so studying truth that you've picked up the error. And so recognizing false teaching, when we study God's word, we can immediately tell if that teaching is off base. And so we close off then with a couple of other statements real quickly. Verse 23. And this is, again, the fact that now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you as faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under the oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so we see now he closes this with a prayer. And it's a prayer that's really what many people call a wish prayer. Sometimes a prayer is more in the imperative, um, if you want to learn a new word, optative mood, that is a potential wish. And so again, that's your word for the day, by the way, a wish prayer is one where I wish, I pray that this would happen in you. It's not necessarily an imperative or a demand, but it's one that would help you understand how he wants and ultimately God to sanctify those individuals. And so in one respect, it's not a wish because he knows God will do it, but it's a wishing that they would be obedient to God's moving in their lives. It's sort of an expected hope, if you will that He will surely do it. Then He goes on to give us a couple of other things. First of all, a request for prayer. Then a greeting. And then a final doxology that repeats the same, if you will, grace from the greeting of the letter. So we start with grace in 1 Thessalonians 1. We end with grace in 1 Thessalonians 5. And then finally, verse 27, asks that the letter be read to all believers in Thessalonica, so that everyone would hear their instructions and teaching. So we recognise what was the purpose. This is one of the first letters Paul writes, and we see that the purpose was for every one of these letters to be read in the congregation, many times read many times. Some of it, as I pointed out, even became part of the liturgy or the catechism that was happening to those in the first century. So we've gone through now the five chapters of Thessalonians. Isn't that fun? And um, in a week or two, we will get into Second Thessalonians. But I thought since ultimately it dealt with the issue of work, I thought for just a minute I might just pick out two or three very quick principles before we take a break. And I hope many of you that are visitors will join us for lunch today. That's one of the best times to meet us. Or come to game day. You will find that a few people in this class are rather competitive. But nevertheless, you know, um, hopefully we'll extend enough grace in the midst of some of those games to have a great time. But this is how you meet people. Right now, as uh, Parker says so many times, you're looking at the back of people's heads. But you can have lunch with us. You come to a game night or one of these other events. You'll get to know us a lot better. And we would love to get to know you. But What about this issue of work? I wanted to mention one or two things. There is a misconception that a lot of believers have, and that's why I wanted to pass this on to you, so as you are growing in grace or discipling someone else, you can pass it on. Work is part of the created order. There are a lot of people that are even in the Christian world that think the only reason we work is because of the fall. And yet, you heard me two weeks ago talking about the fact there will be work that we will do in the new heavens and the new earth. God created us as human beings. He gave us dominion over the creation. We were to be stewards over the land. We were to care for the garden. We were to work the ground. And work is really a natural part of God's order, even before the fall. Now, what did the fall do? Well, the fall, in Genesis 3, turned work into drudgery. It cursed the grounds with thorns. And our livelihood became painful toil. But work was not a curse. But the curse of the fall made work today more difficult. So we recognize that working is part of how we are, created in God's image. We do work. Just as God worked six days and the seventh day rested, we are to work as well. Now, we can also recognize that when we work, we should recognize that ultimately from God's point of view, as we work for a person in authority over us, we're working as unto the Lord. Here's a couple of examples. Usually I quote from ESV, but I think the NIV in this case gives us a little better understanding. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know the Lord will reward each one for whoever, whatever good they do. You see this also in the letter to Colossae. the Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. One of the arguments I make, and there's a whole paragraph on it, so I'm summarizing it, is that when you're working for your employer, ultimately you're working for the Lord. And it's almost like Jesus is standing behind your employer as you work. One of the obvious implications of that is, is I think Christians should be the best workers in the community, the best workers in the company. Uh, If you go to China, even to this day, some of the communist leaders will begrudgingly admit that Christians that are in China are better workers than some of the others because they understand that principle. And you can go to certain third world countries and notice that uh, those people that are held in highest esteem are the Christians because they're honest and they're trustworthy. And so that is, I think, a testimony that we get from this idea of work. Another is that even as we work, we also should rest. And so I've alluded to that a minute ago. Actually, we have that pattern that we see in the law of the Sabbath and in other Old Testament provisions. I was in Kansas this week, and one of the questions I got uh, from one of the uh, teachers there, I had both students and teachers, and... (laughs) Usually the teachers have to ask the first three questions and then the students start asking all sorts of tough questions at this Christian academy. But the first question out was about the Sabbath, because we've been talking about time and business and things like that. And I said, well, if you think about it, there's a lot of emphasis in the Old Testament about rest, right? Six days of work, seventh day of rest. If you've ever been to Israel, you know from Friday night to Sunday night, not much is happening. Streets sometimes are real empty, no shops are open, all of that. Well then, not only that, six days of work, seventh day of rest, six years of plowing, and a seventh year of sabbatical and then you have seven sevens the 49th year you then have the 50th year the year of jubilee so there was a real pattern and jesus sets that pattern as well you see that in mark and luke for example and so in some respects that reminds us that we should though we work should also have a time of rest we should work we should be very good workers but it doesn't mean we have to be workaholics. Does that make some sense in that regard? But the opposite of work isn't rest. It is idleness. Because we can see what? And we just saw this in terms of the idea of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But let's go back to the Old Testament. Proverbs six. 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. That's a short summary of all the things we can learn in terms of nature. Proverbs 12, he who tills his ground will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. I love that line. And another great example, Proverbs 13, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. By the way, you've got to understand, in the Old Testament, being fat was the positive. You know, today we we always try to be skinny, but, you know, if you were fat, meant that you had Great benefit there as well. And so you can see that that's also an idea. Well, one more point, And that is, why do we work? And again, there's a whole section that I have there. But first of all, it helps us meet our own needs. It helps us exercise our gifts and abilities, whether we're paid or unpaid. Sometimes the things that we work hardest on are things we don't get paid for. I understand all of that, only so well. That's kind of the way ministry is sometimes. But or even your hobbies, some of you may work more on your hobbies than you do in your life. But that's all work from a biblical point of view. But at the same time, God expects us to work and not be financial freeloaders. So I'll give you a preview when we get into 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul writes this first letter about work? And then when it came time to write the second letter, he had to emphasize it again. So obviously you had some people that were a little too idle, maybe a little too lazy, and he had to bring it up again. And the advantage, of course, is as we work, it provides income that we can use to advance the kingdom of God and ultimately spread the gospel throughout the world. Next week will be, of course, a missions emphasis here at um, Prestonwood. And even as we come to year end, we encourage you to give to missions. And I am so impressed with all the things that this church and really the Southern Baptist Convention are doing to expand the gospel. And your financial support certainly is relevant in that regard. But I wanted to, if nothing else, take just a couple of minutes to talk about some of the other verses in terms of work because ultimately we are to be good workmen. We are to be individuals that are diligent, and we are individuals that show joy and love and peace and patience within the body of Christ. Parker?